did Buddhism succumb to a Brahminical quote-unquote jihad? Uh, as there is a lot of allegations being passed around on social media and Twitter nowadays that uh, Hindus, Hindu rulers destroyed uh, Buddhist uh, monasteries and etc. etc. So the secularist alliance has been defeated in its attempt to deny the millennial Islamic campaign of jihad to destroy Hinduism which remains vividly illustrated by the ruins of numerous Hindu temples and proven by numerous testimonies in Islamic chronicles. So now the focus on accusing the Hindus of the same behavior slash jihad against Buddhism instead. Now, how to pin pick this attack? We have our speaker, Dr. Conrad Els, to uh, kind of give a context and a perspective on that. Welcome, Dr. Elst. So, Dr. Elst, my first question to you on this topic is, was the Buddha himself persecuted by the Hindus? Was he murdered by the Hindus? Well, yeah, that's a good question to ask because uh, for some uh, religion founders, that is indeed what happens. About Jesus, you must have heard how he ended. Then um, Muhammad was poisoned by the widow of one of his victims. Uh, Zarathustra probably was also murdered, though it is not clear if he was murdered because they wanted him rather than if he was murdered just because soldiers were killing everyone they could find. Um, then uh, the founder of the Baha'i sect uh, spent years in prison uh, and, and so on. I mean, there are a number of uh, well, people who have uh, had a sorry end. Now, that did not happen to the Buddha. There is uh, absolutely no case of persecution of the Buddha. There were a few attempts on his life, but they were by a jealous pupil in his own order. So it's not an, an ideological uh, attempted murder at all. So no, you see, he died in high age, age 80. Uh, in his bed, so to speak, I mean, even though he didn't use the comfort of a bed, but um, it was by food poisoning. At age 80, you know, you don't have to do much wrong to, to die from it. But so it was not an attempt on his life or anything of the sort, not even by one of his own disciples. So uh, it was just a peaceful affair. Um, there... Um, there was some violence in his life, though. These um, incidents I mentioned, they happened totally at the end of his life, um, when he was like 77, 79. Namely, um, his own sort of complicity in a military operation by the Magadha Kingdom. But that was, he was very distantly involved. And uh, he gave some advice to, to one of the plotters. Uh, though you can't say that he advised them to, to do this invasion, to do this conquest, not at all. Then there's something else, which is the Shakya Hatya, the uh, killing of his own tribe. So you could say that that's an enormous failure. That's not, you know, what you would ex expect from some towering figure like the Buddha. But so he tried to prevent 
but didn't succeed in preventing the massacre of the tribe that he came came from, the Sakyas. But that, again, you see, had nothing to do with any ideological matter. They also weren't per se Buddhists. Uh, so that, that that to do with the family feud and so it, these are the things that happen in this veil of tears, according to the Buddha himself. So it's a pity, but it uh, cannot at all uh, help the case for Buddhist persecution. Thank you, Dr. Elst. Now my next question is, where does Pushyamitra account come from? And the Divya Vadana claims he promised rewards for bringing in the severed heads of the Buddhist monks. Right. Now, um, first of all, this text is about uh, 300 years after the events. So it's not exactly an eyewitness account. Uh, many ideological and other considerations may have come in. But moreover, in the same text, you find an account about Ashoka, where he offers a reward for heads of people from a rival sect. They're called Nilgrantas, probably Jainas are meant. So um, Ashoka, of course, was not such a peaceful character. You know, even though you may associate Buddhism with nonviolence, he was not exactly nonviolent. He, um, and all this happened while he was a Buddhist. You see, there's some, some, uh, some misunderstanding about this. Some people say that later in life, after everything terrible he did was over, then he introspected and he became a Buddhist. That's not at all the case. He was already a Buddhist when his father was still ruling and he was the governor of some part of central India. And so, um, when his father died, he uh, grabbed power, eliminating his older brother, who was the legitimate heir to the throne, and then killing many of his other brothers. There was some a brother still left alive who is going to play a role here. So um, after quite a bit of bloodletting, he uh, came to power. Then he also um, tried to achieve natural borders by uh, conquering this recalcitrant part of India called Kalinga. And then he um, he wanted to do something about the uh, near ground house. And so he issued an award according to the same Buddhist source again, of course, centuries later. Nevertheless, it's not Buddhists who are going to choose Buddhists or anything normally. So here you see about their own champion Ashoka, they say that he awarded uh, some uh, gold for whoever brought him the severed head of an Irgranta. Then um, people apparently took it serious because some heads were coming in. And um, then one of the heads that was brought to him was the head of his brother, the brother he had left alive. And so then he realized, what am I doing? And so then he stopped. 
moreover, and and so the story about Pushyamitra is rather obviously a calc, you know, an imitation on this story about Ashoka. Moreover, it's not a very serious story because it has some miracle elements in it. So some very saintly Buddhist managed to um, to produce out of thin air something that looked like a head, a balloon. And so if you wanted to collect the reward, you could get one of those balloons and bring that in and pass it off as a head of a, of a, a Buddhist. So um, that story is really not to be taken serious. Moreover, it is at variance with the known fact that the patronage of Buddhist Buddhism, the uh, building of uh, Buddhist institutions and so on, simply went on, continued to, during Shunga rule. So there is really no indication. And uh, serious scholars like uh, my countryman uh, Etienne Lamotte have said that, you see, there is, due to lack of evidence, Ushamitra must be acquitted. So that, that story is, uh, is a story. Now, Doctor, the third question is that the Hunas are claimed to have destroyed Buddhist temples. Mm -hmm. Did they? Yeah, well, uh, the Hunas did, did um, work some destruction in India. They started out, you see, upon entering India, almost the first thing they encountered was the Vedic University of Takshashila, which they destroyed. So uh, it is quite possible that they did some destruction. And I mean, this, this, this Takshashila case is, uh, is certified that, that they really did. Um, so yeah, this is quite possible, though um, you have to see that the source is again not that reliable. Um, you have the Chinese travelers who give a lot of hearsay. You see, they report that some Hindu king did something to Buddhists, but it's all hearsay. And it's, it may also be generations old, what they report and so on. So th that's in this category. So, so it may happen. You see, it's not a Brahminical onslaught. Uh, this is by the Hunas, but okay, it's, it's not impossible. That's all we can say as, as responsible historians. You see, we have these accounts. There may be something true of these accounts. Uh, but then, uh, you know, you do have cases of violence between sects, even between Hindu sects. Like the famous example they always give is, uh, at some Kumhamela. There was a violent uh, confrontation between Shaiva monks and Vaishnava monks for the honor of being the first to take a ritual bath. Um, so such things may have happened once in a while in Indian history. So we have very little hard evidence for any of that. But in principle, you know, it, it could it could have happened. Yes, you have to look closely because often. Um, it's not what it is now made out of. You see, now they're starting to say, okay, anything that the 
the, Mus the Muslims have done to Hindus that the Hindus have also done to Buddhists. That's absolutely not true. And um, where this seems to be true, you still have to look close because there is often an angle to it that casts a different light on it. Like you have this case of Harsha of Kashmir, um, where it is said explicitly uh, that, see, he tried to, um, to plunder uh, temples, not specifically Buddhist temples, but also Buddhist temples. And so there, um, in the Raja Tarangini, it is said that, uh, you know, uh, inspired by the Turks in his employ, he behaved like a Turk. So, you know, even there, it, it is, it is, it is explicitly recognized that even if a Hindu did it, it's a Muslim phenomenon. It's the Muslims who have brought this bad habit into India. Now, Doctor asked, uh, who destroyed Buddhism outside India? Yeah, well, <laughs> before uh, looking at what happened to Buddhism in India, it's of course instructive what happened to Buddhism first in uh, Central Asia. And so there, uh, Buddhism was quite effectively destroyed. Uh, that counts for, for instance, Tunghuang, uh, where the Tocharians left a lot of uh, legacy uh, in terms of Buddhist scriptures, Buddhist translations, also some original Buddhist writings. Um, so those, those, that Tocharian population has been absorbed into what are now the Uyghurs, who are Muslims. Uh, but, you know, far to the west in, in Uzbekistan, you also have plenty of Buddhism. Buddhism was clearly the most conspicuous uh, religion at the time, like Tashkent is from Takshakhanda. Um, and so you, you do see, in fact, a little bit of remnant of this Buddhism within Islam, namely in Sufism. You see, when you look at the, the, the theology in Sufism, you find notions like uh, the fana, which means the annihilation, and so that's uh, so that's the goal of meditation, and that is like a, a calc on the Buddhist notion of nirvana, of uh, this blowing out, this uh, emptiness, this uh, shunya. Um, so there was a, a period of transition where enough of Buddhism was still alive to influence some interested Islamic thinkers. Uh, but at any rate, the result is that within a few generations, Buddhism had disappeared completely. So you must have heard about the Bamiyan Buddhas in uh, Afghanistan. Afghanistan is more or less the cradle of, not of Buddhism itself, but of expansive Buddhism, of global Buddhism. Because it's from there also that Buddhist monks went to China and that Buddhism became big in China and Japan. Um, it's also there that probably the uh, Buddha statue originates. And I know that this is, this is a contentious point. I know that there are Indians who, uh, who maintain that, you know, that this owed nothing to outsiders, at least on the face of it. And I'm not an art historian, 
but on the face of it, it looks credible. This is a Greek, uh, a Greek invention, huh? because um, the Greeks had their Indo-Greek kingdoms in uh, Afghanistan, and so it is. Uh, it is rather clear that it is outsiders, that these foreigners who took mostly to this Buddhism. This is for it comes with the Greeks, for the Tocharians or Kushanas, some of the Scythians. And so the Buddha statue looks like a Greek statue. Like often the Buddha is depicted with curly hair, which is not Indian. It's a typical Mediterranean characteristic. Uh, so it's like the Apollo statue. It's a, it's a counterpart to the Apollo statue, uh, the Buddha statue. And so you have the Bamiyan Buddhas there. And so there you start the, uh, the habit of uh, giant Buddha statues, like you find many in China and Japan. Um, so the, the Bamiyan Buddhas were already sought to be destroyed in the Middle Ages, but they were so big and the technology wasn't up there yet. So finally in 2001, the Taliban had uh, finally fulfilled this this uh, ancient wish of uh, the Islamic invaders. But so in Central Asia, of course, the Brahmins weren't there to destroy uh, Buddhism, so somebody else's jihad was needed. Thank you, Dr. S. Uh, now my next question is, uh, who destroyed the Nalanda University? Yeah. Yeah, this has recently become contentious again. Uh, a few years ago, it is Dian Ha who um, wrote that uh, this is done by fanatical Hindus and who denied explicitly that this was done by Bakhtiar Khilji. You see, Bakhtiar Khilji was one of the lieutenants of Muhammad Ghori. Muhammad Ghori conquered Delhi in 1192. And then he sent on his troops, uh, Shah Zuran Ghori, his nephew, and um, Bakhtia Hilti, uh, and a few more uh, into the Ganga Valley. So they conquered it up to Assam. And they destroyed everything in their way. This was the, the, the biggest orgy of iconoclasm ever in history. So all the temples in Varanasi were destroyed. Uh, the uh, well, this is a, this is a point on which I disagree with Meenakshi Jain. I say that the Rama Temple was destroyed then, the big Rama Temple of which the foundations have been found by archaeologists underneath the Babri Masjid. Okay, so that temple was destroyed already in 1192. Later, Hindus may have reconquered it and done something with it, but the big temple that had been destroyed at the end of the 12th century. And so uh, they also uh, destroyed the Buddhist institutions in, in Bihar, their historical center, including Nalanda University. And um, the, uh, the source that Dian Jha bases himself on is by a Tibetan who wrote a century or so later. Um, and so he doesn't say fanatical Hindus, but he describes it as, as happening in India, 
looking at it from Tibet, um, these uh, these Muslim interlopers are a part of the Indian landscape. Of course, they were not native there. They came from somewhere in the West. How far in the West? Western India or beyond India? That's all not known to him. Uh, so in a way, you see that expression of uh, fanatical Indians at that time, Hindu and Indian were pretty much synonymous, except for Muslim Indians. Um, so you see that it doesn't exclude at all what we know from better sources as being the doing of uh, Bhakti Ahimsa, which is, for instance, testified by the Muslim chronicler, chronicler Minhaj Siraj. So uh, it is quite, quite, quite certain that it was Bhakti Ahimsa. And um, so this is not the doing of Hindus at all. On the contrary, you see, from the time of the Buddha onwards, until 1194 or so, that these institutions have existed. Nalanda was founded somewhere beginning of the Christian era, uh, but other institutions already existed, and so they all continue to exist until the end of the 12th century. So what Jha is saying, in fact, amounts to this. You see, all these Hindu kings, they were just sitting in waiting, lying in waiting, you know, watching these Buddhist institutions, you know, just holding their fire for 1700 years, from the time of the Buddha till the end of the 12th century. And for 17 centuries, they were just letting it all happen. They were letting the Buddhists, you know, going about their business. And then suddenly, in the sight of the Islamic invasion that was coming, they quickly, quickly, quickly set all these Buddhist institutions on fire so that the Islamic invaders couldn't do it anymore. They couldn't set them into fire because they had already burned up. That's, in fact, what Dian Jaha says. This, this is, I mean, how ridiculous can you get? You know, that's... That's the length to which they go in order to deny the Islamic guilt in this regard or to, to somehow make the Hindus equally guilty. <laughs> so now you see, you can rest assured that um, if, if you start Nalanda again, it's not Hindus who are going to destroy it. Thank you, Dr. Elst. Uh, next question is, what happened to the Mahabodhi temple? Yes. Well, I think that that contention is still not resolved. Um, there is a, a governing board consisting of both Buddhists and Shaivas. And so some, uh, some Buddhists uh, in the prevailing secularist parlance, I would have to say, some fanatical Buddhists uh, want to just uh, bring it back fully into Buddhism, you see, remove the Shaiva presence. Now, what has happened historically? So this uh, temple was built um, on the site where the Buddha achieved 
his awakening. He's in the forest. Of course, he went into the forest to meditate far from the madding crowd. And so the consequence was that when the Muslim armies moved all through Bihar, where they burned down Nalanda and so on, they missed this Mahabodhi temple because it was in the middle of the forest. We're not on the roads of the, the armies. So it remained standing. Unfortunately, because in the institutions no Buddhists were turned out anymore, no monks came out from there anymore, because they had all been leveled to the ground, um, or if they were quick enough, had fled to outside India. Um, so this, this Mahabodhi temple was standing empty. And so um, the Shaiva monks did survive because they were not as centralized in institutions as the Buddhists were. This is especially true for the whole Vedic tradition because it's passed on from father to son. So it's in the privacy of your own home. And that's a bit much if you want to destroy all that. Whereas these institutions are easily recognizable and all the people are concentrated there. So if you level them, well, then it's over. And so that's, that's what happened there. Um, so the Shaiva monks survived. There was already a Shaiva element in this Mahabodhi temple. You see, many Buddhist temples do have a Shiva or a Ganesha inside. This is normally a Hindu temple, that you have a central deity and that you have some more also. Like in, in um, uh, Shankaracharya's formula, there is one central deity and four more. So um, also, they are sometimes used as doorkeepers. That may be a bit of a low status for a divinity, but it also happened, you know, that we had a Shiva outside the temple where the Buddha was worshipped. So anyway, the uh, the Shaivas recognized enough of their Shaivism in the temple, and so they ran it as a Shaiva temple. Now, um, if I would look at this from the viewpoint of a Buddhist, I'd be grateful, because otherwise this temple would have just fallen apart. And uh, so they kept it for centuries. Then finally, you see, when the British came and so on, and the, the king of Burma also uh, meddled in it, and the, uh, the Mahabodhi Society founded in Sri Lanka, got to know of it and so on. Then you see the Buddhists were back. And so a compromise was found between the original purpose of the temple and the historical fact that Shaivas had taken care of the temple. And so, you know, as things go in the world, I think that that was an acceptable compromise that, that both parties were represented in the, in the governing board. How that should be in the future? Well, that should be amicably settled. I mean, there's nothing more original I can say about it. Uh, so I think you have to, of course, do justice to the original Buddhist purpose of the place, but you should also leave a place as long as it is so desired by the people concerned to the, the Shaiva element.
that is simply a part of the history of the, the Mahabodhi side. And anyway, if you look deeper into it, you see there is not much fundamental difference between uh, Shaivism and Buddhism. They're really about the same thing. They're, you know, going for absolute consciousness, unqualified consciousness, nirguna, you know, which is emptiness. And so, you know, that, that ought not to be a problem. So no riot should be created about this by anyone. And indeed, so far, it has been uh, debated in a civilized manner. But so, um, the, uh, it is, it is there also the, um, the Islamic invaders who have eliminated the Buddhists from there. And so, uh, it's not at all because of Brahminical Jihad. It's not the Shaiva monks who have run the place who had earlier, uh, driven out the Buddhists. That's not the story at all. Thank you, Dr. Elst. Next question is, now, apart from the Buddhists, a similar account concerns the Shaiva saint, Nan Sambandar versus the Jains. Mm -hmm. He had them massacred. Is that yes. a contention? Well, um, you see, Hindus are not very good history writers. You see, I, I, I love you and, you know, all the great things that Hindu civilization has done for mankind is always wonderful. But for history writing, they're just not very good. Um, I mean, compare, for instance, with the nearby Chinese civilization from about 800 BC. For every major event in Chinese history, you know the exact date and place. And I mean, with date, I don't just mean the year, I mean the actual day. You see, whereas in India, you have these, uh, these, uh, controversies. You have Vashankaracharya from the eighth century or from the minus fifth century or so. Uh, you know, it's not that level of exactitude. And so it's also here in history writing about Jnana Sambandar, there is a mix up of hagiographical elements and real history. And often the, the, the miraculous stories have a historical core, but they also have much else. And it's often difficult to make out what is real history. Now, in this case, again, we have some later accounts. That uh, goes like this, Yana um, Samvandar, a Shaiva saint and the local giants in Tamil Nadu, um, had agreed to have a debate. And the stakes of the debate were that the loser would convert to the sect of the winner. And this was a, a, a very official debate. This was patronized by the local king. So he laid on, okay, I will see to it that this agreement um, is followed up and that the loser converts to the sect of the winner. And when Yana Sambandar won the debate, the giants didn't keep their part of the deal. 
and so they didn't convert. And then the king, not Yana Sambandar, but the king, then intervened and said, okay, you see, I will not have you uh, trespass against the law that I have laid down. And so then he moved to punish them. Uh, if through at all, because that also is not certain, you see, if, if, I mean, in, in this type of debate, people throw uh, the word evidence around a lot. Now, you see, in the case of historical evidence, the fact that you have a text that says something doesn't absolutely prove that it also happened. And so in India, especially in this religious literature, you have to be careful. There is a lot of history. There is also a lot of, you know, embellishment and sometimes pure invention also. Um, but so I, um, I would certainly not hold uh, Diana Sambanda guilty of any persecution of giants or so. And again, you see, this is uh, long after there were Shaiva kings in South India. And yet there were these giants, you know, so they had survived all these centuries already. So clearly the Shaivas were not, you know, systematically persecuting the giants. The giants were part of their world. Thank you, Dr. Els. Now, the next question, Dr. Els, is did the Hindus ever have any practice or doctrine of idol destruction? Well, there are cases where Hindus take over Buddhist places, like the um, the Mahabodhi temple that we just discussed, when the temple had fallen empty and there were no Buddhists to do Buddhist services in there. Well, then the, 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 the place was adapted and then continued as a sacred place, but not a Buddhist place anymore. The reverse also happened, like uh, the... Uh, what's it called in Cambodia, the Angkor Wat, which was a Vaishnava temple and was turned into a Buddhist temple. So uh, this sometimes happened, uh, though, of course, much less than what is claimed nowadays. You know, there are people who say, oh, yeah, you know, the, the, the Brahmins turned stupas into temples. You see, <laughs> that can only be said by people who've never been to a temple or never seen a stupa. The stupa is a totally different thing from a temple. It's not some building that you walk into. You know, it's a, stupa is in fact an artificial hill. Uh, you see, hills were often used in the dim and distant past as, you know, grave hills. And so a, a corpse, or at least the remains of a corpse, you know, a relic, like the tooth of the Buddha or so, is kept inside or there. That's a totally different thing from a temple. Um, but yeah, here and there, this may have happened. Um, like nowadays, I hear that they're saying this about the um, Jagannath uh, temple in Puri. They should get their story straight because I remember in the time of the uh, Ayodhya controversy, of course, the secularists were at the exact same game as today. So they were saying, yeah, but Hindus have also done this. And look, you see, in Puri, they have taken an animist shrine from the tribals. Now, I don't think that the tribals build shrines. I think they worship in the open air, just like the Vedic dishes. But anyway, for what it is worth, yes, there is a tribal presence at the site. And tribals, the local tribals have a ritual role in the functioning of the Jagannath temple. 
but so that's that's a different lineage from the Buddhist one. And so you see, this story is a bit uh, garbled, but on the whole, you see, in principle, I accept that this has happened here and there. That you see, a place that was no longer functionally Buddhist was continued as a sacred place, but with a different focus than the Buddha. Um, what was your question again? Doctor, else, uh, the question was that did the Hindus ever have a practice oh, or yeah. not? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that that uh, has to do with uh, another story that you hear a lot these days. Um, it was started by uh, an American Marxist historian, Richard Eaton. And I don't throw the label Marxist around. That's only for people who themselves appropriate that label. He has called himself a Marxist. Okay. So, um, the... Um, first of all minimizes what muslims did to hindus uh though less than 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 what people think like only yesterday i saw another youtube video where some uh muslim uh student in cambridge was being interviewed by a, an anglican theologian and um so he could give the whole story about how the Hindus are persecuting the Muslims, how the Hindus are doing false history and all that. Um, and so he, of course, brought in the position of Richard Eaton. And so he said, yeah, and Richard Eaton has done a count. And there's in fact only 80 temples that the Muslims destroyed. That is not true at all, even according to Eaton's count. Of course, Eaton is a very much a, a negationist. He totally minimizes the magnitude of what uh, Islamic uh, rulers have done in India. But nevertheless, not that bad as is being said here, because if you count these 80 cases of temple destruction, they don't mean 80 temples destroyed. Like one of the cases he enumerates is the destruction of a thousand temples in Paranasi. So that's not one of the 80, that's a thousand. So the 80 are rather more than 80, are thousands themselves. So even according to Eton, the uh, Hindu temples, you see at least thousands among them were destroyed. Okay. Now, the point we're coming to uh, is that uh, this same Eton has also said, oh, but it is an old Hindu habit. And so the Islamic invaders brought nothing new. They continued what was there. Well, first of all, of course, that um, royally overestimates the degree to which Islamic invaders took inspiration from Hindu examples. In fact, mostly when they invaded here, coming from Uzbekistan or so, they didn't know anything about the Hindu customs. And anyway, they didn't need those to guide them. You see, if they wanted to destroy temples, they had the example of the Prophet Muhammad. Muhammad took over the Kaaba from the Arab pagans. 
the Arab pagans worship there. There were 360 idols in there. So that if people came on pilgrimage, because of course the the, uh, the Hajj, the Islamic pilgrimage was also taken over from the pagans of Arabia. So when people from all over Arabia came there, you know, they could always find a statue of the god that they particularly cherished. So they were all destroyed by Muhammad. This is this is described in Islamic sources. This is one of the great moments in Islam. When, you know, his enemy, Arab paganism, gets destroyed. Because the idea for him was not just uh, to destroy statues, to destroy pieces of art. No, the idea for him was to destroy a religion of which those pieces of art were a representation. Um, so, you see, the Islamic invaders, whenever they care to uh, to um, justify what they were doing, they never, ever, ever refer to some Hindu example. They always refer to Muslim examples and ultimately to the example of the Prophet himself. Um, moreover, and there's some other, another aspect to this. What did the Hindus do? You see, what does Eton refer to when he says, okay, it's Hindus, you know, that they take uh, an example from. So they did not take an example from them, but nevertheless, there is something uh, in Hindu tradition that could be brought to bear on this question. Namely, there was a habit among pagans in general, not just Hindus, you find many examples in Mesopotamia of um, abduction of idols. Like, for example, when um, the Assyrians in the, well, about 700 BC conquered Babylon, they took the main idol of the city god Marduk with them. Then, two generations later, when the brother of Crown Prince uh, Asur Banipal um, became the governor of Babylon, he, uh, you know, to make it a festive occasion, his own entry into the city where he would take up his new function, he brought back the statue of Marduk. And so everybody was overjoyed. And uh, moreover, I will add to the uh, to the belief, or some will say the superstition, that this idol had real power, because once the idol was back in Babylon, um, the um, this this new governor actually started a separatist movement. You see, he rebelled and tried to get the independence of Babylon. Uh, so clearly the god had instilled some pride in its people. I don't know. At any rate, the idol still existed. And so that was the general rule. You see, pagans um, had respect for other gods. You see, the god of another tribe was maybe not my god, but he had some power that you had better respect. So you can see, for instance, when Alexander the Great 
conquers this uh, this whole empire, he takes care to go and sacrifice to the main gods of all the areas he conquers. You know, when he has conquered Egypt, he hears about some sacred place that the Egyptians themselves go on pilgrimage to. It's somewhere far in the desert in Libya. And so he takes time off from his busy schedule as a conqueror to actually go there and sacrifice to the gods. So um, this, this, uh, this psychology determines what then happens with those, those, those statues, those idols. So yes, there are cases in Hindu history, not too many, but yes, there are, uh, where uh, a god is abducted. Now what happens? When a, a, a god or a god statue, an idol is abducted, you see, in, in, in the place of the loser, okay, the venerated statue disappears, is taken away. So what happens? Well, the priest, you know, who serves that statue installs a new statue. It's in fact good for employment because some sculptor can make a new idol. And so that is consecrated as put in place. And the whole cult of that divinity simply continues. What happens? at the winner's place. Okay, he brings in triumph the idol that he has abducted. What does he do? He goes to his own main temple, he installs that statue, and the worship of that statue continues. So this is a totally different thing from what happens in Islam, where uh, Mahmoud Ghaznavi uh, takes the idols of the, uh, the Somnath temple takes them home, you know, breaks them to pieces and uh, has them masoned into the lavatory or the steps of the mosques or so, so that all the faithful have the immense pleasure of trampling the idols underfoot. You see, what Ghaznavi and other idol breakers try to do is to destroy the religion. You know, the cult is not continued, not in the place of the loser, not certainly not in the place of the winner. There is no case at all for Ghaznavi or Aurangzeb or Ghori or, or Bakhtiar Hilji taking a statue from the loser and installing it in his own mosque. You see, then it would be the same thing. Then Eton would have a point. If he can point to a case where you see some Islamic conqueror takes the statue of Shiva and puts Shiva central in his mosque for worship. But I don't think that that has ever happened. So you see, that's a totally different thing. There is, of course, no Hindu doctrine uh, of idol breaking, not even a doctrine of uh, idol abduction, but the fact of idol abduction once in a while, very sparsely, is real. Yes. So why this uh, renewed interest in allegations of Hindus destroying temples now, Dr. Well, uh, anything, of course, that blackens the Hindus is always welcome to the uh, secularists. But you see, today, of course, uh, 
the question of uh, destroyed temples is in the news again. You know, it was in the news during the Ayodhya movement back then. We also heard all these stories about Hindus having done it to Buddhists. Um, so this is this is back uh, now. Now that um, uh, things are happening around the uh, Kashi Vishwanath, where they discovered this uh, Shiva Linga, moreover, uh, and and Mathura. You see, those places are not historically contentious in the way that the the the, the Babri Masjid Ramdan Mubumi was. You see, there there was a claim that there had never been a temple there. Of course, that claim was false. That was easy to refute. There was plenty of evidence that, of course, there had been a temple there. But at least, you see, the uh, the eminent historians made an attempt. And then because of their position of authority, most of the media and so on fell in line, followed them, even all the Western uh, Indologists, who should have known better, just uh, towed the line. Uh, but you see, in the case of Mathura, there is absolutely no reason to doubt this is the birthplace. Of course, there was a temple there. There are a number of descriptions of the successive destructions of this temple uh, by uh, Ghaznavi, by Aurangzeb. They themselves, of course, made no secret of it. In the case of Ayodhya, the in the diary of uh, Baba, you know, the, the time that he spent in Ayodhya uh, is not mentioned, not because he doesn't mention it, but because the pages containing this report have uh, been carried away in some, some windstorm. He describes it in a later part of his diary. So there we don't have his own testimony. But in the case of, uh, of uh, Ghaznavi and Aurangzeb, we have we have it from the horse's mouth. And moreover, in the case of uh, Kashi, the, the parts of the temple are still part of the mosque. You know? Uh, so, I mean, there, there is absolutely no case in denying, yes, of course, these Hindu temples were destroyed by Islamic iconoclasm. Now, that, you see, they can't do anything about anymore. In the case of Ayodhya, they still made an attempt uh, to deny the history here, it just doesn't work anymore. So they change the focus and they try to say, I have it, Hindus have uh, also done this. And so therefore you have these, uh, these stories. It can go quite far on social media um, where you have, uh, let's say, fanatics, uh, Ambedkarites especially, uh, who just uh, anything, anything that, that, that helps against Hindu, they will use. So they will say that Buddhism was, uh, destroyed in India, not just these specific, uh, universities and so on, but you see, Buddhists as a whole have been wiped from India by Brahminical onslaughts, as the, uh, set phrase uh, goes. Um, but so that is now um, poked up, let's say, by the current news about these uh, places of worship. Also, the places of worship act. Um, you see, now there is talk about abolishing that. 
Places of Worship Act from 1991 um, stipulated that uh, all places of worship are frozen as they were in 1947, except for Ayodhya, which is allowed to be in dispute. And so now some neo-Buddhists are saying, ah, but if that law goes away, if, if Hindus all over can claim their, the mosques built on their temples, then we too can do the same thing. So you see, that's not what the secularists have, uh, have started this discourse about uh, Hindus killing Buddhists for. But nevertheless, it has as a side effect that some neo-Buddhists, who are of course secularists in the operative sense that they hate Hinduism, um, they also may try this. And so from the secularist viewpoint, this is okay because it just, you know, troubles Hindus. It can create problems for them and that's, that's what they want. Uh, so no, um, in a way, you see, you should see the good side. The fact that they are desperately trying to accuse Hindus also means that Hindus have made a little progress. You know, the, 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 the the history of temple destruction can't be denied anymore. That at least they have achieved. Uh, I have a question. When there is sectarian conflict, if people are alleging Buddhist, Hindu, sectarian conflict on a systematic basis, uh, do you think there should be aggression on the other side too? And if so, what is the evidence for Buddhist aggression on Hindus in India and outside India? Well, not much. You see, the Buddhists in their monasteries were in no mood for uh, um, for aggression. Uh, the main case of Buddhist aggression in Indian history is by Ashoka, who was not a nice man to know. Uh, otherwise, uh, hardly any case in, in, in the case of India at any rate. Um, you see, nowadays with the Rohingyas in Myanmar, uh, Time magazine has put on its cover, uh, one of the Buddhist leaders there, the face of Buddhist terror. And so now this idea has gained ground. But, um, in, in Indian history, at any rate, you, you don't see that. There are also only few Buddhist rulers. In fact, you see, the idea of the Buddhist ruler is also problematic. By Buddhist, normally, you mean a Buddhist monk. There were also Buddhist lay followers, but you see, that was a very minor phenomenon, especially when you compare with a similar case of Jainism, where you have a real Jain community, a Jain lay community that supports from uh, the the monks recruited from uh, its own circle. Uh, in the case of Buddhism, this is much less the case. And you see everywhere where Buddhism goes, in China, Japan, and so on, you can't say that the population becomes Buddhist. The population remains what it was. It remains Taoist and Shinto and so on. And then from among the population, Buddhist monks are recruited. And then, yes, you know, through the education system and so on, they will also have an influence on the local culture. 
But in the main, you see, the local culture doesn't disappear. Um, like, uh, for instance, once I saw in Los Angeles, there's a Thai temple there, you know, and there's uh, quite a community of people immigrated from Thailand. And so they went there, um, you know, to the Buddhist temple. So there's a big Buddha statue there and they sacrificed to the statue. What did they do? They bring white chickens. The white is uh, deemed some sacred color. Uh, they bring white chickens, and in front of the Buddha, they slash the head of the chicken. Um, so, the Buddha himself, as we know from the from the Pali Canon, was against animal sacrifice, which was still far more common in Brahminical circles in those days than it is today. Um, but you see, this is traditional in their culture sacrificing white chicken and so that has been integrated into what much buddhism they have there um, so uh, what you have in in all these so-called buddhist countries is a lay community that just continues the ancient local religion then more buddhism minded lay people whose life has been more transformed more affected by buddhism who for instance will leave out those animal sacrifices and then you have the actual buddhist monks the the uh distinction is not always is not very absolute because many people in their young days uh become buddhist monks for a few years indeed you see when you hear in the news about buddhist monks have done this and that it often means what you in a western country would simply call students so you see people become monks, take vows for a few years, uh, learn uh, Buddhist sciences, often along with, with worldly sciences, and then step back into lay life. Um, so you have this gradation of full Buddhists and half Buddhists and non-Buddhists, and that's a normal thing in a so-called Buddhist society, and Buddhists have never had any problem with it. It's not like in... Uh, the Israelite religion, where a hardcore of full monotheists try to make the whole population monotheists, try to weed out all the remnants of idolatry that they found. You see, in the case of Buddhism, if there are many people who are not really Buddhist, well, that's their choice. You see, Buddhism is concerned with the Buddhist himself, not with the rest of society. And so, I mean, in, in, in the case of Indian history, I see hardly any case of uh, aggression from Buddhists, just as I see hardly any case of aggression against Buddhists. Uh, namaste, Dr. As always, a uh, uh, very good uh, talk and some interesting uh, points that you've mentioned. Um, I just want to know your views on um, the fact that was it not, it's always, it's almost always like, you know, something told to us, this what I'm going to say, that this Brahminical appropriation of the Buddha as an avatar ah. is actually what uh, sort of then led to this huge movement of Buddhists because a large population had converted to Buddhism uh, mm -hmm. back then. And that led to this sort of gradual, okay, this is like just one of us. We'll, we'll just, you know, get on with how we were. And then you go back to whatever primarily because um, Buddhism is a very strong monastic element. 
which is not quite in keeping with uh, a normal Hindu's life of, you know, the Brahmacharya, the, the Grasasana, mm. which is a cycle. So it, there's a sort of a, a conflict. So the moment, so would it be fair to say that was a Brahminical appropriation or you feel that that just happened? I mean, Avatar is yeah. an Avatar. What, okay, what okay. I, I have to stop you because these are already a number of questions. Um, I'll try to answer them all. Uh, first of all, you use the word conversion that I don't agree with at all. Conversion is a Christian concept, later also adapted by Islam, um, where it means that you adopt one religion and you totally break with your earlier religion, like with King Clovis, of what is now France, Belgium, who in 1496 converted to Christianity and his baptism father told him, now burn what you worship. So, you know, there's no halfway station. Whereas among Buddhists and Buddhists in China or Japan, or even among the neo-Buddhists who have a strong anti-Hindu animus, nevertheless, Many of them still worship Hindu gods alongside the Buddha, alongside the picture of Dr. Ambedkar on their house altar. But so they don't make a clean break with Hinduism. Most of them don't. And so in the past also, there is just no sign of this, that they had to somehow abjure Shiva or Ganesha or whoever. Um, okay, then... Um, Mm. And oh yeah, and when you say the population in large numbers converted to Buddhism, I doubt whether it was in 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 really very large numbers. You see, Buddhism was always an elite religion. You see, some some people in the Dalit movement think that it, it was a Dalit movement, not at all. It was absolutely an elite movement, and. Um, so that percentage of the population can't have been that large. Um, okay, now, no matter how large, um, oh yeah, and uh, Buddhism actually could grow precisely because it was an elite movement. Very important to understand. You see, the Buddha himself, of course, was absolutely upper class. And so he knew personally all these, um, all these magnates, all these princes in Kosala, in Magadha, in the Virji Republic and so on. Um, so uh, he profited from that in a very practical sense. You see, all these kings, they patronized all his monasteries. By the time he died, he had a network of monasteries spanning maybe half of India. And, you know, if ever a youngster felt a calling to become a monk. Well, the, the, the monastery was just around the corner. He could go there. And um, quantity breeds quality. So if you attract many of these young men, some of them are going to be bright. That's why you have a nice, uh, pleasing uh, Buddhist philosophy. You know, whereas rival sects like the Ajivikas and so on, they have gone into oblivion. Buddhism has become great. Even if you're not a believing Buddhist, you know, Buddhist philosophy is a very important topic. And, um, okay, so, you see, Buddhism was absolutely an elite movement. 
Um, okay, now, what is your point again? Apart from what I already dealt with, because I'm forgetting something. Yes, I, I just my question, uh, sir, was uh, the Brahminical what what this oh, is what yeah, we avatar, we talk. Avatar, avatar, appropriation yes, as an avatar. So yeah, 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 of course, no of course. Okay, now um, one thing you must uh, always understand is in history you have the homeward um, march of time, and you get all kinds of evolutions. Like, uh, for example, about caste, people call dharma kirti, you know, uh, fulminating against caste. But that was 1200 years after the Buddha himself. Caste was not much of an issue in the time of the Buddha. And so the attitude towards caste evolves just as caste itself evolves as an institution. So here in the case of Avatarvad, there was no Avatarvad at the time of the Buddha. You see, Rama and Krishna were, uh, let's say, promoted to the status of Avatar only gradually, only after their story had been written down. Like in the, um, in the Ramayana, you see Rama turned into an Avatar of Vishnu only uh, in the introduction and then in the added uh, last chapter. Uh, Uttarakhand. Um, and so initially in the story, that's not there at all. Rama is a human hero. And of course he was human. He's a, he has a place in the, the, the genealogy of the solar dynasty. Um, and same thing with Krishna. You see, he's part of this, uh, Yadava tribe and so on. He's a human person with a mother and a father and a sister and a wife or many wives and so on. Just a human history, which ends all too human, you see, with this massacre in his family and he himself being shot to death by, by mistake. Uh, it's all very human. And it's only later writers who take the story. The story becomes ever more prestigious, more embellished, more elaborate. And so it gets uh, elevated higher and higher. And then this, this man becomes an avatar of Vishnu. Now, what does that mean being an avatar of Vishnu? It means that your role in history has been somewhat the same as that of Vishnu within the pantheon, within Hindu mythology. Namely, uh, Brahma is the creator, uh, Shiva is the destroyer, and uh, Vishnu is the maintainer, you see? And so, uh, Krishna, it is said, or Rama, it is said that they maintain the Dharma. They restore the Dharma when it is falling apart. So they make sure that the Dharma continues. Now, if you say that the Buddha is an avatar of Vishnu, that means the same thing. So <laughs> the Buddha upholds the Dharma. That's all that, you know, being an avatar of Vishnu means. Now, unfortunately, Many of these devotional um, Hindus have have made some kind of uh, uh, cartoon out of this with a god up there and a status halfway of avatar and then an ordinary status for us human beings. No, you see, Rama and Krishna and the Buddha were ordinary human beings. Like, you know, this is a point I often make about the Buddha. Contrary to all the hagiography about him, not only 
you know, 2,000 years ago, but even today, you see very many people, you can check Quora, for example, on that, you know, and other social media, very many uh, neo-Buddhists, also Western Buddhists, they have this idea of the Buddha as infallible, as perfect. Now, if you study his life, he was not so perfect. He was a very good man. He was a bright man and so on, but he was not perfect. You see, he made some mistakes. He was, you know, involved in political intrigues, which he couldn't control, where things happened that better not have happened. Or, for instance, his, his, his body was not perfect. Now, later in life, often he gave his discourses while lying down because he had a backache, he couldn't sit anymore and so on. So that's like very ordinary. Many old people get ailments, yes, and so the Buddha also. Um, so that was not divine about him, but you could still call him an avatar of Vishnu in the sense that he played the role of maintaining the Dhamma. Let me also note that um, his status of avatar is something that he brought upon himself. You see, this is not some Brahminical conspiracy to, uh, to rope in Buddhism. No, no, you see, this he started himself. Uh, he was part of the Solar Dynasty. In fact, any Kshatriya from North India who is say that he's part of the Solar Dynasty, or at least from the Ganga Basin. Um, and um, so he was too. And this means he was a relative of Rama, not of Krishna, who is part of the Lunar Dynasty. Although if you go back far enough, they are also related because the the ancestress of the lunar dynasty was the sister of the ancestor of the solar dynasty. But I mean, at any rate, with Rama, that's a bit more close. And um, so he himself claimed to be uh, not only a relative of Rama, but also the reincarnation of Rama. That's in the Jatakas, of course, that's a literature centuries younger than the Buddha himself. But all writings we have in Buddhism are at least 300 years younger than the Buddha himself. So, I mean, if the intervening time is a problem, then you have no Buddhist texts at all. Okay? But so, according to a Buddhist text, again, this is not some Brahminical conspiracy. According to a Buddhist text itself, he himself claimed to be a reincarnation of Rama. Now, therefore, the day that Rama was elevated to incarnation of Vishnu, then his reincarnation as a Buddha automatically also becomes an incarnation of Vishnu. So, uh, I mean, this is all fairly innocent. This is not a Brahminical conspiracy. But um, I am aware, of course, that there are different interpretations of this. And so, in, in the Puranas, there are several explanations, so one of them is quite negative, where they say, okay, the Buddha uh, was sent to the Asuras in order to mislead them, in order to give them the true path to enlightenment. He misled them by leading them to nothingness. And uh, so in that way, you see, he preserved the Dharma, namely by misleading the enemies of the Dharma. Okay, so that's a bit of a, a nasty uh, afterthought. 
Okay, so that also exists. But you see, within the Brahminical, uh, you know, mental world, you have all kinds of things. And so you have a lot of genuine feeling for the Buddha. Like in today's India, certainly, you know, and you have people who call their children Rahula or uh, Siddhartha or so, uh, you know, and, and in, in Amar Chitra Katha and other, you know, sources, you, you see how respect for the Buddha is very much integrated into the religious feeling of most Hindus. Uh, but yes, the other side is also there. That's what you get in Hinduism. You can say black and then you can also say white. They're both true. A drama called Tughlaq by Hirish Karnat, which is about Muhammad bin Tughlaq, in which a character says, a Muslim character says to another Muslim character, stay away from, because see, the Buddha, Buddhism, Buddha being an avatar of Vishnu is inclusion, inclu, you know, inclusion of yeah. uh, another uh, community yeah. into ours. In Tughlaq, he very clearly says, stay away from the Hindus. A Hindu will come and embrace you and he'll declare Muhammad to be an avatar and uh, Islam to be another caste of Hinduism. Okay, well, let me first say that uh, some Muslims have done exactly the same thing. Uh, I think it is the um, Ismailite Muslims in Gujarat who claim that uh, Krishna was a prophet. On, on the same footing as Abraham and Moses and so on. So Krishna was also a prophet. In fact, uh, this is a story that, that was created at a time when a number of Krishna worshippers uh, converted to Islam. And so, you see, to give them some continuity, to make the conversion more palatable, they sort of integrated the belief in Krishna into their Islamic belief. And it's not entirely against Islam to do that. You see, as long as religious figures predate Muhammad, it's, uh, it's tolerable to integrate them. So to say that Krishna was also a prophet and Zoroaster was a prophet and uh, even the Buddha could be termed a prophet in that sense. Uh, you know, it's only if it's after Muhammad, then, of course, it's against the idea that Muhammad is the seal of the prophet if you invent new prophets. Um, now, in the case of the Buddha, of course, there is a bit of a problem, um, namely that, you know, maybe others call him uh, uh, an, uh, an avatar of uh, Vishnu, but in his own teachings, there is a strong element of atheism. Now, that's not entirely true. There are, in fact, texts, you see, that, of course, are kept absolutely under wraps by the neo-Buddhists, where the Buddha praises the devas and calls on people to worship the devas. Uh, but on the whole, you see, in his system of meditation, the devas play no role. So, you know, if you're an unbeliever, you can practice the Buddhist system up to the end. You never, ever encounter the devas, uh, which you could say about the, the, uh, the Yoga Sutra as well. You know, the, the, the injunction to uh, use Om as a mantra, 
need not be interpreted as calling on the gods, calling on Shiva, uh, though most Hindus make that of it. Uh, but in B Buddhism, at any rate, there is no doubt about it at all. And so once more, I recall that in 2005, the Buddhist clergy in Cambodia protested against plans to enter into the textbooks the notion that religion is all about worshipping God. You see, this they said is insinuated by the Christian missionaries. They want to give the idea that, you know, religion means worshipping God. Well, we are a religion, we don't worship God. Okay? So, you know, the, the idea of, of atheism within Buddhism is, is very real. And so to make him into a prophet of Allah, that is... Uh, and so that perhaps explains why the... or that helps explain why there is this, this ire, this angriness of Muslims against Buddhism. And you see why Buddhism uh, has so completely been destroyed wherever Islam went. So, uh, uh, then of course there is the, the other element, and this is where Buddhism becomes a religion, but it's not good again, even in this avatar, if I may use the word, even in that, in that, um, in that form, because there, you see, very common people worship the Buddha. And so they don't worship somebody up there, no, they worship the historical character, the Buddha, just as many bhakts do with Rama or, or Krishna. Um, and so they make idols. And so the Buddha statue is the idol par excellence. And indeed, you see the word Buddha became Persian Bhut, which means idol. And so Bhut Parasti is idol worship, Bhut Shikani is uh, idol breaking, iconoclasm. Uh, so there again, you see, <laughs> Buddhism does not qualify for acceptance by Islam. So uh, to get back to the original idea of uh, Hindus destroying Buddhist shrines, uh, may, uh, I thought you might want to comment on the questionnaire that Sitaram Gopal actually presented to the eminent historians against such claims and uh, what its implications are in the current debate, uh, current resurrected debate in fact. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> there is a, a claim by some eminent historians that uh, the blood flowed, uh, rivers of blood, you see, in the Buddhist monasteries under Brahminical onslaught. And so Goelzi said, well, of course, there have been debates, just there have, there have been debates between all kinds of Hindu sects. Uh, but this case of uh, uh, bloody massacres of Buddhists, there is just no example in history. There is no record in history of that. And so he, he challenges them. I'm asking for uh, an example of this. I'm not asking for two, just one. Do you have one example of this? Now, so far, me too, I have not encountered such an example. So that, that challenge is still open. And even if it is answered, 
You see, somebody may have lost his temper and committed a massacre, but that still doesn't mean that Hinduism has it in for Buddhism and that it's going to destroy Buddhism if it gets a chance. That, uh, you know, the massacre of Buddhists is somewhere on its program and it, if it gets the means to do that, it will come out in its true colors and massacre the Buddhists. That's just not the case. And indeed, Buddhism has flourished for so long in India. And, and you see the, the quarrels among historians are about the so-called mistreatment of Buddhism in the sense that patronage for Buddhist projects fell away. That kings uh, channeled their funds to other uh, statues, other temples than Buddhist ones. Um, which draws attention to the fact that originally Buddhist, Buddhism enjoyed an enormous patronage. And so in the time of the Buddha himself, you see, <laughs> Buddhism could grow and flourish thanks to this enormous patronage. Of course, the um, attraction to the, the figure of the Buddha and his very... Um, very pleasing, very satisfactory teachings that played a role, no doubt. But to say, as many devout Buddhists would, ah, Buddhism was so successful because it was the best. Well, that's not the whole story. You see, Buddhism was also the wealthiest. It was being endowed with all kinds of patronage. Like, uh, for example, um, uh, many kings levied taxes which came in the form of money uh, for traders and so on. But for, for ordinary people, for craftsmen and so on, it came in the form of uh, services. And so for a month in the year or so, they had to work for the king. And so in this case, the king, you know, earned his uh, punya, his uh, religious merit, by ordering these workmen, okay, now you build a monastery for the Buddha. And so, you see, the Buddhism really, 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 and this is just insufficiently realized, profited enormously and became the leading sect thanks to this patronage that, you know, the others couldn't hope to get. Um, so when that fell away or when that became less, well, that must have felt unpleasant um to uh to buddhists but that's something totally different from uh persecution you know this um this question of patronage is also overrated in the sense that um historians speculate for example uh about something important in the history of buddhism namely the adoption of sanskrit instead of pali um, as a ploy to uh, get more patronage again. So they say, oh yeah, in order to negotiate at the courts, you know, to get patronage, you know, when the courts changed over from the, the popular language to Sanskrit, they also had to use Sanskrit. You know, that's not at all an explanation for why Buddhist scripture changed over to Sanskrit, you know. If, if it was only court negotiations for patronage, they could have selected one 
one particularly proficient uh, scholar and send him to court and do the negotiations in Sanskrit. For that, they didn't have to change their whole, their own um, system of function. No, you see, they changed over to Sanskrit because that was more practical. They could, you know, use Sanskrit everywhere. And maybe somebody local had to then translate it into the local vernacular. But at any rate, they could take it everywhere. They could also take it not only today, but also three centuries from now. Because it was a dead language, which doesn't mean it's not used, which means simply that it doesn't change anymore. Everybody learns Sanskrit from Panini 2,000 years ago and even today. So, you see, Sanskrit was a stable language and a universal language. That's why the Buddhist order adopted it, not because of negotiations at court for patronage. So, you see, this issue of patronage is quite overrated, but yes, it may have played a certain role in the sense that Buddhism had less patronage later. And so you see fluctuations in the... Um, attendance in, in, in Buddhist monasteries. But you see, that's normal. That's in all the other sects also the case. And it doesn't annul the basic fact that Buddhism flourished for 17 centuries on end in India. That the universities that Bhakti Ahilji destroyed were still in existence, still had thousands of students, mostly Buddhists. So, you really can't um, can't blame Hinduism, and so the the question that uh, the challenge that uh, Sitaram Goel asked of the eminent historians is still valid. You see, if you want to plead that a Brahminical jihad destroyed Buddhism, okay, what what is the evidence, Doctor S? This is um, so so revealing because. I grew up hearing that uh, Buddhism, and then for a couple of years, I followed one cult, you may say, in Buddhism, in which we were taught that uh, Lotus Sutra has a line which says that Buddhism will originate in the land of the Lotus, which is India, and migrate to the land of the Sun, which is Japan, and later in the uh, in the in the latter ages. It will come back from the land of the sun and to the land of the lotus where it has been destroyed. It will be mm. so not only Buddhism, but even as a Hindu, I grew up with the idea that okay, Shankaracharya and his followers they destroyed the Matas and that's how Buddhism got destroyed. So this is the first <laughs> time I'm hearing this. Yeah, well, <laughs> Shankaracharya did not destroy any Matas. Um, he is said to have debated Buddhists, though I haven't seen any account of that. Uh, I wouldn't be able to give the name of any Buddhist who was defeated in debate by Shankaracharya. You see, all this debate with Mandala Mishra and so on, we have records. But, yeah. you know, this about Buddhism is quite vague, but you see, if there had been actual <laughs> destruction of Buddhist monasteries and so on, that we would have heard about. So, uh, you know, that's, that's just a story. Now, the problem here is that most people know about Buddhism only through these modern introductory works. And so you have this modern myth about Buddhism being a rebellion against Brahminism and against the Vedas and so on. 
and and so many people say, yeah, Buddhism was against Hinduism. No, where is this in the Buddhist canon? He was against Hinduism. That's not said anywhere. But you see, that's what modern textbooks say. It starts in the 19th century with this Christian misunderstanding of Buddhism. So the the the, the first Orientalists back then already construed Buddhism in terms of Christian history. You know, the Buddha was vis-a-vis -vis the Brahmins, the way Luther was against the Pope, the way Jesus was against the Pharisees. And, you know, from there on, it uh, it gains uh, steam, you see, it becomes more, uh, more adversatorial, more conflictual. And so that then it becomes the picture to get the introductory works. Even the people who study Buddhism in primary sources, they have first gone through these introductory works. They often, unless they consciously make an effort to free themselves from it, they often see the Buddhist sources through the lenses that have been put on their noses by the modern Orientalists and their followers. I mean, this is not a question, but uh, this is regarding uh, Adi Shankaracharya, whose name just came up. So uh, the this is just a comment. So the traditional account, which is the Shankara Digvijaya, it does not mention that uh, Shankaracharya directly debated Buddhists, but it does mention that his uh, adversary, uh, Kumarila Bhatta, who was a Mimamsha, uh, mm -hmm. actually had in fact infiltrated Buddhist ranks and yeah. to understand their doctrines and then defeated them in debate. So in fact, the ground was already prepared by the Vimamshakas, if you may understand from this. And mm -hmm. uh, the uh, post to that story is that Kumarila Bhatta also felt sad about betraying his guru. And also about, he said that if the Vedas are true, then I will be saved because they were trying to escape. And uh, he felt guilty about saying that if the Vedas were true, because the Vedas are true. So. He condemned himself to a very slow and agonizing death in Paddy Hus. That is a traditional account in burning mm. Paddy Hus. Thank you. So uh, that, that is the traditional account. So it, it is very clear that this uh, debate, if at all, is at a very uh, elitist level. It is not percolating down into you know two groups of people uh, picking up cudgels against each other. It is at a very elitist level where there are scholars involved and uh, they are still very careful about maintaining the proprieties of Guru mm. and Shishya mm. and also belief in the Vedas and so on. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, there is um, there is one story of a, a, a serious conflict that does involve war, but it's not with Hinduism, it's with Islam. You see, after Buddhism was destroyed in Sindh and, and West Punjab by the Arabs in the uh, 8th century. The um, Buddhists reacted and their reaction can be seen in a book called the Kala Chakra Tantra. The Kala Chakra means the wheel of time, means the zodiac, therefore also means astrology and means prediction of the future. And so this, um, this book is really 
uh, a sort of variation on the Shiite doctrine of the Mahdi. You see, the Mahdi is a, a leader of the Muslims who will come at the end of time and who will fight the Antichrist. I mean, is that uh, that Christian idea uh, of the Antichrist? Here he is called Dajjal, the, the one eye one. Um, who will lead an army of 70,000 Jews and some other categories. And uh, so the Mahdi will defeat them. Um, now, that story was inverted with the idea that a Buddhist army is going to be formed at the end of times. And it is stipulated when this is going to be. And that will be, be victorious against the Mahdi. So the Mahdi is going to come, but he's going to be defeated. Uh, this confrontation is going to be in 2425, 24, thereabouts, 2400. Um, and uh, it's going to be led by the king of Shambhala which is then situated in northern India, in Himachal or thereabouts. And um, this is he's called Rudra Chandra. And so he's going to be victorious. Now, this is 1800 years after, uh, after the start of the Islamic calendar. So they're allowing Islam 1800 years of history. But then Islam will be defeated and destroyed not necessarily by massacre, at any rate, Islam will disappear uh, after the victory of Rudra Chandra, and then Buddhism will rule the world for 1800 years. Of course, this 1800 is a Hindu sacred number. Um, and in fact, you see, the, um, the number of years is a bit complicated because the first years are real years, and then you get Islamic years, which are a bit shorter than real years. So the whole thing of 1800 years is not exactly 1800 real years. Anyway, that's a calculation I've done long, long, long ago. Uh, but at any rate, you see, that is the integration of the Islamic doctrine of conflict between Islam and all the rest into the Buddhist view of the future. And so this, um, uh, this Govinda, this, uh, not Govinda, uh, Rudra Chandra is often identified with the Maitreya, with the next Buddha, whom you find back in the Puranic doctrine of the 10th avatar, Kalki. Kalki is more or less mirrored on the Maitreya. Uh, anyway, but so this is, a, this is a Buddhist doctrine of sacred war, of holy war projected into the future. And at the moment, the Dalai Lama regularly conducts ceremonies of initiation into the Kala Chakra. And so essentially, essentially what you promised there during that initiation, most people don't know in this funny Tibetan, uh, but you know what they promise is that they're going to be soldiers in the army of Rudra Chandra in the incarnation that they have in 2400, right? So that's a, a bit of a Buddhist doctrine of conflict. Nevertheless, it's modeled on Islam. 
so just like with Harsha of Kashmir, who behaved like a Turk, you know, here also this is inspired by Islam. Mm. 